Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy, a podcast that journeys into conversations that demystify, destigmatize, and desensitize what goes on both inside the therapy room and in daily life. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Logan. And we are seekers, soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. Every week, we sit down for soul-provoking conversations with fellow seekers, thought leaders, change makers, and even real people during live coaching sessions as they navigate the hard work it takes to be a human. This is Cheaper Than Therapy. We had another interview where I feel like I came out the other end. I don't know, like more, I don't know. I have no words, like more engaged, more tuned in, more um, aware, more curious, more, I don't know, more everything. Yeah. I love when we have someone on that, you know, we sort of do a little check-in with one another before we start. And sometimes, you know, we're in life and all of the mothering and all of the things that happen before we log on to do the podcast. And then we'll just talk to someone who is so inspiring and really a conversation that just like brings so much life to both of us. And I love when I can look at you and see that you're feeling the same thing that I'm feeling about what this person is saying. It's just like the best. I love those moments. That's like that thing that reiterates why we do this. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. like you said, we'll have these days where like anybody who's listening, who's a parent could attest to where you're just like, I don't want a life today. Like <laughs> parenting is hard. And, mm-hmm. and then you have those kind of conversations that just fill you up and you walk away being like, Oh, right. Like, this is why I do what I do. And I think that this guest has a way of doing that. And it makes sense when he talks about you know, the like retreats and the workshops that he leads and the kind of people that he works with. Um, it makes sense that people gravitate towards him because he has such a powerful message and story mm. and, and um, yeah, a gravitational pull. Yeah. I'm really excited to share him with you guys. I, I told him at the end and I, I truly believe he's a treasure. He just has a really, really beautiful energy that is so inspiring to listen to you and you feel like you just get so caught up in listening to what he's saying that you could just listen to him um, talk about what he's talking about for hours and really feel alive. Yeah, for sure. It's a gift. Mm. Uh, a gift we share with you all. Yeah. All right. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. Uh, Vanessa and I are so excited to talk to today's guest. Um, We have Coot Flaxen in the house with us, who is a transformational speaker, teacher, national bestselling author, and host of Soul Talk with Coot Flaxen podcast. Um, Coot was born in Ghana. His unique lineage laid the foundation for his approach to breaking down barriers and unlocking the individual's true gifts and greatness. For over 20 years, Coot has been inspiring audiences around the world. His mission is simple, to awaken and inspire people across the planet, to access inner freedom, live authentically, and fulfill their life's true purpose. Thank you so much for being here with us, Coot. Thanks for having me. Sounds like we have similar life purposes ourselves, all of us. (laughs) (laughs) So we, you know, Coot, we always start with, we want to know about you, right? We're so interested in origin stories um, in family of origin stories, you know, and you have a really interesting background, um, that feels really unique to this space. And so I'd love if you could just kind of tell us like, how did you become who you are? Right. Like take <laughs> us back in time, like, let us know, you know, what, what's your, what's your story? 
Yeah, um, yeah, born in Ghana, mother's Japanese, father's Ghanaian, grew up in LA uh, since I was 18. Grew up in London, but then LA. Okay. So I feel like I'm, a, I'm from everywhere, I'm from nowhere and, and never felt like I belonged anywhere, but felt like I was part of everyone. And so that was an interesting combination. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think as a kid, uh, I always felt, I, I was very sensitive and empathetic. So I would feel people's pain and suffering like very intensely, you know? And there was always a part of me that wanted to alleviate suffering in some way but I didn't know how to. And, and so um, one of my first memories as a boy was uh, walking in the crowd and seeing this crippled woman crawling on the floor. And she picks up the sand that this man walks on, wipes on her face and stands up. And so week after week, I grew up seeing the same man who sand she picked up, look at a woman in a wheelchair, for instance, and say, uh, why are you in this wheelchair? Stand up or look at someone with crutches and say, throw your crutches away, you're not sick. Or look at someone who had no eyes eyesight and he would touch their eyes and they would see and so this man was my father and so I grew up in this this environment of miracles and a lot of people would say well is that shit real really did that really happen and I grew up seeing it it to be honest it didn't seem that unusual it didn't seem different it's all I knew and and because it's all I knew on some level people would think I was crazy but on another level the blessing was I didn't grow up with a sense of limitation in terms of what was possible because I was just seeing people walk and, you know, crawl and eyesight being restored every week. And so the blessing was I grew up with a real openness and sense for what's possible. Um, when I was, my, my father built 300 churches in Ghana, West Africa, and had hundreds of thousands of, of people in his organization uh, at its height, a huge church in London three to four thousand people so you know my my career as a speaker began at, at the age of eight when I started speaking in my father's churches and age 14 I was ordained as a minister given a mandate to take over my father's organization and so uh, there was a lot of pressure on me as a kid um, there was a lot of responsibility as a kid uh, a lot was put on me as a kid um, which had its pros and cons you know looking back and and I had, I was expected to take the mantle and take over and grow the operation. And, and when it, I'll never forget when it was announced, I'm 14, no one spoke to me about it. This was my father's style. Like he did, my father was the type of person where it's, it's like, it's my way or it's my way. Like you choose (laughs) old school guy. Mm -hmm. And I'm on stage. I look at my mother. She has no idea. He's spoken to no one, but now I'm the guy going to take over and I knew that that wasn't my path I knew that that wasn't my like I just felt that it's not quite how I'm feeling it to be this is this is not my soul's destiny purpose trajectory even at 14 you knew that it just didn't feel right I I like I didn't know that it wasn't right until it was announced because I wanted to help people and the way I saw it being done was the church so I figured maybe and Yet when it was announced and I felt it in my body, something felt off and uh, I, I didn't say anything because I was you know, too afraid to, 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 to speak. My fear was if I dared to speak my truth and if I dared to reveal who I really am inside to my father, then I would lose his love. I'd be outcast, I'd be alone. Everyone would reject me. 
And so from 14 to 18, I said nothing. And I went along with it on the surface, but internally there was so much turmoil. And internally there was so much conflict and questioning and fear and confusion that were kind of coexisting simultaneously. And so I said nothing, um, but I knew that for me, I was being guided in a different direction. And over those years, the pull got stronger and stronger. When I was about 17, I felt this soul calling to come to the US, to come to America, because on my father's bookshelf were like thousands of self-help books, basically spiritual books, Eastern mystics, Western mystics, you know, uh, Osho, Krishnamurti, Ramana Maharishi, to Wayne Dyer, Louise Hay, Deepak Chopra, Marianne Williamson. So, you know, age 10, age 11, I grew up reading these books. And this was my uh, obsession. This was my life. Th these were my best friends, you know, Mark Victor Hansen, Jack Canfield, Louise Hay, like these yeah. were my icons. And so I started seeing a new way to, oh, you mean it doesn't have to be through the church that you inspire people. Oh, these people in America, they're doing it through seminars. And so it opened my mind. And that's what made me feel this deep connection to coming to the US. And I felt this pull to go in this unknown direction that was undeniable. But when I turned 18, I had to make a decision. And I looked into my future. Something's pulling me to, to come to America. I looked into my future and I saw I could take the, the expected path and be successful. And a whole platter was laid out for me. But I realized if I didn't have myself, if I didn't have my soul, if I didn't have my own essence then what what kind of success is that you know and I projected into my future age 20 age 30 age 40 and I felt such a all I felt was pain that like like the pain of self-betrayal the pain of feeling like I was committing soul suicide and this feeling like if I lie to myself now and I live this lie in order to get the love that I think I want I'm going to have to lie to myself for the rest of my life you know and 18 the rest of your life seems like eternity forever. <laughs> forever and uh i just couldn't do it and that's when i knew what i had to do which was felt like kill my father is what it felt like mm -hmm. and um i had to do it and so in a nutshell i had that challenging conversation with my father that was the day i felt like i became a man and looked him in the eyes and said I'm not, I knew I would break his heart, but it was also heartbreaking for me. And I said, I'm not taking over. He said, are you sure? I said, yes, we didn't speak for two years. Um, it was heartbreaking, you know, and uh, it was tough. It was really tough. But that's when life began in a certain sense, because um, I was in this really unknown confusion phase but I knew that something was guiding me. And so I made a prayer in that moment. Um, like I said, God, I, I feel like I'm following my soul. I feel like I'm following my destiny, but now I have no support, no money, no nothing. Like don't abandon me here is, is what, I, what my, basically my prayer was. And within, I don't know, somewhere in a week, I was in the library of my school and somebody hands me a magazine called The Economist. And that's when I felt chills in my body. And I thought there's a reason for this. And I look in the back of the magazine, it says the American government is giving away 55,000 green cards in the green card lottery. And that's when I felt a confirmation that I was going to win this, this lottery thing. Didn't even know there was such a thing and entered it through a law firm, 
long story short, won a green card in the lottery and came to the US and $800, two suitcases, knew no one in the country, just showed up a 18 year old kid, basically. Wow. That's the short version. And then went and found, you know, many of the teachers, uh, the authors I'd read about, you know, they were all in San Diego, Los Angeles, you know, this is the Mecca. And so went and found them and studied with them, harassed some of them, knocked on their doors, <laughs> found their addresses uh, and, and learned from them. And then years later, um, traveled. You know, I went to Thailand to, to kind of seek answers, study with some monks, went to Israel, studied with some rabbis, ended up in India. And that really had a transformational impact on my life. And then I came back and kind of 20 years ago, started coaching people, no idea what the hell I was doing, to be honest, but, but just had a sincere and pure, authentic desire to inspire people and help people. And I think it was out of that. I, I came back from India and I felt such a sense of freedom, a kind of freedom that like I had nothing to, no money, no fame, no nothing but I felt free and I just wanted everyone to feel what I felt, you know, and, and it was out of that pure desire that I just began talking to people and working with people and developing my skills and guiding and, and things evolved from there and grew from there. So that's the short version. Oh, I have so many places I want to go, but tonight I'm like, <laughs> I can see you like chopping at the bit go. <laughs> well, yeah, I think I, I do want to go back to what you were saying about your childhood for a second, because I think when yeah. you're telling us about how young you were with this level of soul contemplation, mm -hmm. I can't help but drop into the space of what that must have been like for such a young man. And mm. I'm curious about your relationship with your peers. Um, oh, yeah. there must have been a lot of ways that you felt othered and different in general, which I feel like you spoke to, but what was that like to be it was, exploring concepts that most kids I'm sure didn't have a lot of awareness it, about? You know, it's something I don't speak about that often, but it was very strange because it felt like I had two lives. Yeah. Like, like I would have this mystical life on Sundays with the church and my father, and then I'd be speaking on Sundays and like stuff would pour through me that I wasn't even consciously aware of, but it would come through me. And then, you know, at night after school, I would come home and I would read, you know, Yogananda and all these books. And I was, I would meditate at night from like 6 p.m., 9 p.m. till 9 p.m. or 9 to 10, just depending on when I finished my homework, I would mm -hmm. read for four or five hours. Mm -hmm. And I would have, I was having all of these sort of spiritual experiences, but I couldn't speak to anyone about it. Mm -hmm. I couldn't talk, I couldn't go to school. 12 years old and have a conversation with, you know, my best friend, Robert, like, yeah, I'm meditating and Yogananda and, and, you know, then I'm speaking on a Sunday and seeing all these healings. And it's like, it was completely foreign. So I'd have these experiences, then I'd go to school and I'm not saying beast, I'm not saying that I was someone else, but there was a whole dimension of my own internal world mm -hmm. and reality that I was not sharing with anybody that mystical, mir miraculous, you know, seeing miracles, otherworldly experience. And so there was a part of me that always felt very, I, I, mis misunderstood is not the right word because it's not like I even gave someone the opportunity to misunderstand me, but just like that, that I didn't fit in, you know? But, but, but then I would go, but then I would go to school and I was best friends with everybody, like the, the popular kids, the sports kids, the nerdy kids, like I got on with everyone. 
I got on with everyone, became a chameleon. And I, but I gen, I mean, there were pros and cons there. Like I could yeah. get on with everyone and the teachers would send me to speak to the naughty kids because that guy was my best friend and they would send me, then I was the school prefect. So I was, you know, taking care of everyone in school. But the spiritual, the real essence of what I am, that spiritual being part that was probably the richest part of my life as a, as a teenager, as a kid, is a part that nobody knew. Like, no, like I remember at, when I was staying at my friend's house, you know, we would stay over for like a week on holidays and, and I found like uh, Deepak Chopra and, Mary, and, and Tony Robbins at like 12. And this was when he had his infomercials. Yeah. And so I'm a 12 year old kid, and, you know, when you're 12 and you see Tony Robbins, it's like larger than life, you know, for 12 year old. And so I'm there watching his infomercials and in my spare time reading his books, and 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 then and my, my friends would tell like, what the hell are you watching this 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 crap? What is this? You know, so I'd have to hide reading my books. And so it was it was it, it was like a double life, completely a double life. Yeah, it was it was it was strange. I'll be honest, yeah. it was a little strange. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I always wonder when there's a little bit of compartmentalizing, almost that I feel like I hear you describing, and I wonder if that feels like you know, like that was a part of my life that I was almost hiding from my peers, and if there was any sort of Shame's not the word, but like this might make me strange to them, or they might think this is weird about me and my family. Do you know what I meant? Yeah, I think I think there was maybe not consciously some of that, hmm. but 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 it, I just knew that it was not something they would even understand. Right. You right. know, like like Sunday, here I am speaking to thousands of people at thirteen, and then Monday, you, you know, you're yeah. on, on 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 the playground kicking a tennis ball around mm, right. like like it, it, it just it's just it, it was just not even a conversation I could have to be honest so many of my friends they knew my father was a minister but they had no idea about my relationship to that my exp I just I just didn't talk about it to be, I, I just didn't even bother and even start one time I remember mentioning about these miracles that I saw in school it, it, you know, to, to my to my peers and the teacher heard and thought, okay, this kid is, is crazy. Yeah, He's crazy. Like, I'm making it up. It's crazy. It's just blind people. See. And one Sunday, the teacher came to the church. And my dad's church, you know, he was interesting because my dad is interesting. He's from Africa, Ghana. So he grew up very old school, traditional, Pentecostal ish. Then he went to India and had these mystical enlightenment experiences. So his whole philosophy kind of shifted from like old school orthodox religion to much more metaphysical yogananda-ish spiritual. I was going to ask about that because when you were saying who was on his bookshelf, I was like, that seems really interesting uh, for was... somebody who's like a Christian minister from Ghana to be also incorporating that during that time, right? Yeah, he was very different, and yeah. and, and and so yeah, he was a he was a he was an interesting cat. He was <laughs> that's a whole nother you know <laughs> conversation, yeah. but. You know, I remember when the teachers came to, to my father's church, like in my father's church, he still had the sort of energy of the old school, you know, preacher. Yeah. Like imagine like a mystical yogic T.D. Jakes, you know, combined. Mm -hmm. And so my father, when he would do his healings, like so the teacher comes, you know, everyone's singing. It's like a rock concert. Everyone's singing and, you know. Yeah. The spirit's flowing and my father does this healing service where people line up and he would literally put his hands on them, they'd fly across the room. 
you know, in Eastern culture, they might call it like a Shakti Pat kind of experience, but literally they would fly, people were flying, and my teacher's eyes was like that. And my teacher, who said I was crazy, was looking at me like, <laughs> what? <laughs> I'll never forget, like, what is going on? This is my every Sunday, you know, every Sunday. Yeah. So, so it, it, it was, it was, it was, it was interesting. Did your dad talk to you about that process of how he came into that? Yeah, I was going to ask a little bit about that. Like, how do you, you know, at such a young age, I mean, you're having these felt experiences and you're you're clearly, even you're clearly just to a certain level, you're advanced for your age because of the things that you're able to read and the things that you're able to kind of um, understand. But also like, yeah, to Danae's point, like, is your father speaking to you and kind of bringing you into what's happening? Because I feel like at that age, it's, it's tough if we don't have that person sitting my, down and saying, I help you understand this. My father and I, we didn't really have a real conversation till I was 20, 21, like yeah. real. You know, he was this iconic, old, but like, you know, old school, yeah. African. I don't want to stereotype, but old school, patriarchal, yeah. African male guy where there's a hierarchy and plus he was gone and doing his work and so combination of those things we didn't speak we barely had a real conversation didn't happen until i was in my 20s early 20s and so there was no like you know people have this idea oh wow so great having a father and you must have been no mentoring no nothing my father's the type of guy where you want to swim here let me throw you in the in the ocean and and you sink or swim and 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 so I was the one that went to the bookshelves and tried to like understand like what is life and what what is this energy and what is this what, what's the whole book and I became fascinated with reading and you know Krishnamurti and and I really related to Krishnamurti because even though some of the stuff he was saying I couldn't even understand but when I read about his life he was groomed to take over then left everything and so there was some connection I felt to Krishnamurti and people like that and so it was interesting. It so was what's very interesting. For me, is in the beginning of this conversation, you said, you know, obviously from a very young age, you always just had this desire to help, but obviously it took a while until you really realized what that would look like, right? In a yeah. tangible form. Um, and for you, leaving that large of a church and that large of a presence, really, which sounds like your dad was just a large presence. Um, yeah. And then you kind of, you, you found your way into coaching. Now, yeah, coaching, I think it's evolved a little bit since like the eighties, nineties, when it was like more the Tony Robbins esque, like let's stand on stage and kind of give a sermon if you will. Um, but coaching just in general is a lot more human to human, right? I mean, especially if you're doing any kind of individual coaching or even any kind of small group coaching, you have to really get on the level of like getting in deep with the other. Right. And so I think where I'm going with this is how have you seen or even experienced even currently, like taking all of these concepts and these amazing spiritual teachers and all of this stuff that you've learned, putting it into like tangible in my relationships, feet on the ground, um, right? Because it's like, it's one thing to like know this stuff, right? And it's another thing to like live it in like the the trenches of humanity, right? In like the interpersonal relationships. And I'm, I know that's a really big kind of question, but I'm wondering, I guess, what that process has been for you over the last, you know, 20 or so years of like taking all these huge concepts and then like putting them into real life, you know? Yeah, I don't know how, honestly, I don't know how to answer that question because it's, it's not really, hasn't been a formula uh, in any way. Um, I can only just speak from my experience of 
going through at 19, 20, 21, going through my own breakdown, really falling madly in love with a woman I thought I was going to be with forever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, love tends to bring up all of your unresolved shit, basically, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, being a kid that read all this stuff, spiritually was kind of, you know, evolved to a degree, and then didn't really think I had any emotional issues. And then, (laughs) you know, and then uh, I began at 21, kind of like doing these motivational speeches, literally, because I was, so you understand, I was promoting seminars. So out of that seminar promotion for other speakers, Mm -hmm. I started promoting myself. And so now I'm like 21, wanting to be the next what have you and promoting seminars and thinking I'm hot shit. I fall in love and this woman says, I think you got some issues with your dad. And, you're like, and shit. <laughs> no, I was like, thank you very much. This relationship is over. Yeah. You're like, <laughs> and, and, and then I fall in love again. And this time I was madly in love. And so I realized, oh shit, she's saying the same thing. Unless I really heal myself and get down into my body and humanity and do the psychological, mental, emotional, therapeutic work to deal with my unresolved human level issues. One thing to be out here like, yeah, we're all God, it's all good, it's all great, it's all divine, it's all consciousness, great. But but the fact is, there's some shit I haven't dealt with that I didn't yeah. even know. I was kind of spiritual right? bypassing, right? Yeah. And so it was really through the beginnings for me were through love and through relationship, honestly, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. my persona and my identity and my masks and roles just started cracking. And through love, this, this amazing woman at the time who I thought I was going to be with forever, um, just started reflecting back to me all of my unresolved shit with my dad, with my mom. Oh, I mean, we, I don't want to bore you with the details, but all of the stuff of my own suppressed, subconscious, unresolved shit with my mother who I loved that I didn't even know was there just started coming up, being reflected to me in this relationship. And that is what I think began taking me beyond the kind of motivational surface spiritual to the deep sort of exploration. And it was through that, and we can go into that more if you want, but it was through that, that I ended up in going to India and traveling and just letting shit go and coming back. And, you know, I remember, you know, I was pretty broke for a while and I sat in a room during this time and sat in my apartment for about three, four months and just unraveled, mm-hmm. you know. I, I remember going through this relationship and journaling and crying and, you know, shit, all this anger towards my dad, all of this mm-hmm. sadness and anger towards my mom, who I love, all these layers that I had not acknowledged that I pushed so deep down, finally started dealing with this stuff and in therapy and in seminars and just spending all my money to heal myself. Mm-hmm. And then I traveled. And then when I came back, um, it was through that sort of unraveling, unconditioning process that I went through that I wanted to work with people through one-on-one, yeah. you know, because prior to that, it was more sort of the, the accountability coaching, inspirational coaching, rah, rah, you can do it coaching, which, you know, I mean, is great, but it's just rearranging the furniture. It doesn't really get people in touch with the deeper level patterns. And so 
I think it, for me, it was out of my own um, unraveling and falling apart and healing that I started working with people a bit more deeply. Different way. Yeah, in a different way, more kind of uncoaching, unconditioning yeah. than, than coaching. And so, yeah, yeah. And so out of my own, out of my own evolution, I think is, is how it began out of my own acknowledgement of my own humanity. Mm. I love what you're saying so much, Koo, because I feel like with the men that I work with so often, the themes that you're speaking to are sort of that invitation back to their hearts for men. It becomes through a really profound heartbreak, you know, um, and I think the most staggering mirror being placed in front of us. And I, I'd love if you would share a little bit yeah. more about like what you discovered um, through your process of your relationship with your father, that maybe some of the men who listen could, could maybe benefit from some of the insights that, that you started to see within yourself. You mean in the relationship in, in, in that time? Yeah. During that well, unraveling, right? Like some of those yeah. conclusions that you were able to come to. Through wow. Work wow, wow, wow. Yeah. So, 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 <laughs> We could go real deep here, but it, it, in an you you mentioned we were going to go deep. So <laughs> I warned you, your therapist. <laughs> no, I think this is fun. This is good. Um, you know, I, so I attract this beautiful woman that I thought was everything. She's going to mm. be my, you know, like like somehow she was going to be my everything, and that kind of pulled pulls you in, right? Somehow we attract uh, we attract a partner that we think is going to meet those needs that weren't met. We attract a partner that reflects to us those those unresolved impulses that 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 are seeking to be healed and so so quite naturally i tracked a woman that on some energetic level was a not exactly but on a certain energetic emotional level was a similar resonance to my mother mm. um and and i love my mother i i grew up being the emotional husband to my mother the emotional caretaker the emotional husband taking care of her my dad is gone she's crying my dad is gone she thinks maybe he's you know womanizing my dad is gone she thinks you know he doesn't love her. i mean and she has her own stuff but in a nutshell i'm the one that's her emotional husband wiping her tears crying you know while she's crying and just being over responsible for her a woman the feminine her emotions that was my whole identity taking care of the feminine taking care and so now you know and she would have a lot of emotional stuff and so now i attract this woman that energetically is, is very similar you know uh collapse into victim energy incredibly jealous you know uh in a certain way i mean it was just uh, basically it, it was unconsciously it, like i was I was in a relationship where the dynamic was exactly like my parents. Right. It's like, how the hell did that happen? You know, it's like <laughs> unconsciously, here I am in a relationship that that my my girlfriend is my mother, energetically, symbolically. And in the pattern, I'm feeling like I'm my father, mm. you know, and 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 hating myself. And this whole four years of basically not to bore everybody, but four years of complete hell yeah. and, and suffering and hell and pain and, and, and uh, something, and this would take a few episodes to unravel, but something happened in, in the relationship where, where something occurred with my mother and we thought my mother died. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, my brother had a nervous uh, breakdown. Okay, and so we thought my mother died. And so for the first time, uh, this wasn't the first time my father and I were close, but this is like one of the first times after I finally got to forgive my father. The first time when my mother went missing, the first, it was during that couple of weeks where we thought my mother was dead that my father and I got to get real. Mm. My father and I got to speak. My father and I, like all of this un- shit that I didn't even know from my childhood that my mother didn't tell me, my father didn't tell me. I mean, all this stuff started coming up when my father and I are talking for the first time about how he felt, about his side of things. And it was like profound. And, and, and there was a, for me, there was a grieving and a shattering of what I thought my childhood was with my mom and my dad. And, and the profound thing was, it was like someone took a hammer and shattered the, 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 the imprint of what I thought my childhood was that completely, uh, re, that completely shifted my relationship with my mother. Cause in that process, I, I, for the first time I let her go. And up until that one, I was the one that was so responsible for her. And and I let her go for the first time uh, because she literally, I thought she died. I let her go. I let my father go. I forget. It was such a profound process that it forever altered my relationship with women. Mm -hmm. And and, and once I was, and I'm missing certain details, but once I was through that experience, my relationship with my girlfriend at that time could never be the same. And, and so how I began to relate to her was, was forever different, yeah. you know? And, and so as, as an example, she would get jealous. She would accuse me of, you know, doing something which I never did because for me, it was like, I'm never going to be my father, right. which, which wasn't completely accurate. So finally, as I'm out of this time, I had for four years suppressed so much of my own authentic masculine energy. I suppressed so much of my own authentic masculine power in order to never be my father mm-hmm. and not realizing I was judging my own masculine, but now suppressing my own masculine. And so in, in that so much of my raw, real power, but now also with my girlfriend in order to not trigger her. Mm-hmm. And so I had suffocated so much of myself mm-hmm. in this relationship, my truth, myself, my heart, my, that, that I was dying, yeah. dying. And, and it was through that unraveling and, 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 and uncycling um, that for the first time, I didn't feel responsible for how she felt, mm-hmm. you know, which was debatable. Did she really feel that way and how much of it was really me? And now I'm realizing maybe none of how she feels is actually reality. And maybe I'm not the source of it because I haven't done shit, you know? And so, but for the, for the first time, it was like an epiphany, like, yeah. I haven't done anything. And she's projecting all this shit and I'm taking it on because I need to be responsible for my, wait a second. So for the first time in four years, I finally said, no, I'm not, I haven't done anything. I'm just sitting here minding my business and I, you're crying, not because of me, I'm just here. And that shifted the dynamic and it just, it just blew up you know, mm-hmm. because I wasn't taking on what wasn't mine anymore. Right. And, and so it shifted a lot of patterns for me. Yeah, for sure. It shifted a lot. And, and one thing I realized in that dynamic too, was I had to ask myself because I, then I got out of that relationship attracted another woman who was jealous. Mm-hmm. And then another woman who was, I, I perceived as jealous. Then I had to ask myself, 
why the hell am I attracting women that are supposed yeah, to be jealous? What's my part in this? <laughs> yeah. Maybe maybe it's the women, maybe it's not the women, but I have something to do with it. Then I had to do some deeper healing and realize, hmm, there has to be a reason that maybe I want this on some level, even if it's unconscious. And it was hard for me to acknowledge that because I kept saying, I don't want this experience. This is horrible. It's them. These women are crazy. Then when I finally said, wait a second, what's my responsibility? Why do I want this? I realized that there was a part of me, that little boy inside of me that was really afraid of being abandoned. Mm -hmm. and, and out of that fear of my own abandonment, uh, which was very vulnerable and scary to admit, out of the fear of my own aban abandonment, there was something energetically inside of me that wanted to attract that jealousy because that jealousy is, is a kind of possessiveness where I'll never, I'll never be abandoned, you know? Yeah. And so as I started to heal that, a lot of dynamics and patterns shift. I think that right there is going to be a key takeaway for a lot of listeners. It's just this idea of when you can, and Danae and I speak about this all the time, like when you can really sit back and notice in whatever way that you're the common denominator in something mm -hmm. in your life. And rather than shame yourself for it and rather than personalize it and beat yourself about it, really get curious and say, okay, there's gotta be something here. Yeah. Right. And if I really want to heal this, because on the surface, you're like, I don't like this. This feels yeah. awful. Right. I don't want this. Yeah. I don't mm. want this, but something unconsciously does. And if you're really able to get real with yourself and figure out what that is, it can be a turning point in, in your relationships, all of them. <laughs> Absolutely. That's for sure. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah, I feel really, really grateful to you, Coot, for sharing a little bit of the intimate details of your story, because I feel like there are so many men that I hear a very similar narrative that is not spoken that much about. We sort of talk about the father wound and the way that men have sort of not gotten what they've needed from their fathers, but I don't know that we talk a lot about the mother wound in the context of men and how men are a lot of times... Um, attempting to form attachments that are not, you know, really healthy attachments based on this, this caregiver role of their mother or, you know, attempting to be the knight in shining armor for their mother. And it's sort of a cycle that I see perpetuates into adulthood. And I really think, you know, there are a lot of men who are going to hear what you just said and really sort mm -hmm. of resonate with something they're experiencing. So thank you so much for that. My pleasure. Hopefully it helped. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so to, to shift gears a little bit, because I want to have time to kind of talk about, well, there's two things. So I want to, I want to hear a little bit about what your, um, I guess, trajectory, what that kind of pull was for you to write your first book. And then okay. now here we are on the precipice of the second. So I want to hear, you know, third, oh, right? third. second, well, oh, I thought well, this well, was your third. <laughs> second, second book with the paperback. Is oh, coming okay. Out, so. okay, okay. Um, <laughs> but like, what was that? What was that experience like for you? Right? I mean, I'm actually myself, uh, my my first book just went into pre order on Friday. So I'm kind of in a similar, my first time ever, like, holy shit, what just happened. Um, but the process of birthing that right, like, I guess for both, and I'm sure they were different. But what was that like for you? What was that experience? The first one? Yeah, it was different, different, but similar. Um, the first one. Uh, I always knew I'd write a book or books, because from when I was a kid, I'd read these books and I had visions of like, I want to write books. And I wanted to write books that would impact lives and inspire people. So that was always a dream. Um, I thought I would do it much sooner, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, I thought I would do it, you know, as soon as I came to the US, I'm going to write a book, you know, two years. And it didn't happen. Um, and in 2010, I met with a very maybe the largest self-help publisher in, in, in the world. I won't mention the name, the CEO. 
And I sat with him, my dear friend who, who introduced me, set up the meeting. And I had the opportunity to write my first book then because he said, wow, you've done some really amazing things in, in coaching and we like you. You've kind of built an interesting business. And uh, I shared my vision for the book I wanted to write. And he said, mm, we would like you to write this kind of book, which was more of like a coaching, your coaching methodology book on paper. And if you write this, we'll publish you. And here I was being offered kind of, sort of what I wanted, a book deal. And once again, everything in my gut said no, mm -hmm. because there was nothing, it was someone else's vision. And there was nothing original in what he wanted me to write. And I felt in my gut that it wasn't aligned with my soul. And if I write this sort of step-by-step -step formulate methodology book, like real transformation doesn't necessarily happen just like reading information. And I thought, my methodology works, but there are like millions of methodology books out there, step by step, but I don't want to write another book and it's not my soul's expression. And so I said, no, everybody said, you're once again, you're crazy. You're crazy. Don't do this. <laughs> Just write the book, use it as a stepping stone. My soul said no. And that's been a curse and a blessing I've had where I can't go against my, my soul. For better or worse, it, it just doesn't let me. And so I walked away and I took five years to, to build my business, to grow my brand, to, to, to transform lives, to do the work, to, to, to expand things, and ultimately to do the work. And I'm so glad I did because I didn't take any shortcuts mm -hmm. and I didn't compromise. And by the time 2015 came around, I was ripe as a human. Mm -hmm. uh, sure, I could have written something earlier, but, but if I'm honest, I was ripe. Um, my audience was ripe. Things were ripe. And out of that ripeness, organically, not out of force, everything unfolded for the first book. I got this incredible, like, William Morris was my agent to just showed up, you know, we had like seven meetings for publishers and all of them wanted the book and it just, Everything was in flow, not because I was making it happen, just because I felt like I'd followed the authentic trajectory of my soul, not on an egoic timeline. Yeah. And, and so I would just, for anyone that wants to write a book, I would say, you know, first and foremost, honor your soul and your soul's journey and be true to your soul and yourself. And, and because I had done the work, I felt like the ripeness of it, just the harvest happened. Yeah. And so with the first book, everything like, like the book type, the, I had just taken my, my best writings and blogs and what have you presented that to the publisher and figured this is going to be my book. And so here's what was funny. They, they said, they read it and they said, we want you to make some changes. Then they read it again. And I'm like, okay, we want you to make some more changes. I made those changes. Third, third round, we want you to make some more changes. I said, you guys want a different book. And they said, kind of, sort of, yes. And so what was interesting was I, they say, I used to do these journeys to India, these deep transformational journeys to India where I would take one person to India, take away your passport, take away, take away your money, you have a backpack, a pair of clothes, you're stuck with me for 14 days, for two weeks, and I take you through a deep dive transformational and unconditioned journey. And they said, we want you to, we want you to kind of frame the book around that journey because that journey is very unique. Mm -hmm. 
And this was the exact thing I said I will never do. I will never write about those journeys because I will never capture the multidimensional sort of healing shamanic level, you know, transformational level of those journeys on, on a piece of paper. Which is different for everybody, right? And, 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 and I said, no, I'll never write about that. Now they're asking me to write about it. And here I am going. So I went and meditated and I heard they're right. My ego's like, no, but now like they're right. <laughs> yeah. And so I had to check my ego at the door. I'm going to be honest and step back and go, okay. And so now I had literally two months to write an entirely new book that unfolded and it became, you are the one. And it, 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 you know, reached a lot of people. And that was an amazing experience. The second book, the magic of surrender was again, it was not the book I thought I was going to write. Mm -hmm. I honestly wanted to write a different kind of book. I thought, what, what book would sell? What book would be a bestseller? What book would my audience want? What book? When I, so I wrote on a, on a, I was going to do a strategy session. I was, thought I was going to be intelligent, right? And I wrote on a wall all the ideas of the book I thought would sell. Like, you know, the solid love, not giving a fuck, the magic of tidying up books. So yeah, I'm going to write one of those, something clever. <laughs> no, 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 no. The only word that really had integrity and authenticity was surrender. That was mm -hmm. the word that was, that was like had a light on it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I don't want to write about freaking surrender. I mean, like, no, we should, but no one wants to do it. So it's going to be pushing a boulder <laughs> up a mountain, you know, but that in my soul, you know this is the book. Mm. And then I reflected back, see, to, to the alignment was the book came about, I think the seed of the book was planted because in 2016, my mother was diagnosed with stomach cancer. And I'm on a high promoting my first book. I was on Larry King, all this stuff. And it's like, life has a way of humbling you. And so here I am with my mother. I, I'm flying back and forth from LA to London every month to be with her in a chemo session. So it's like the worst year of my life, basically. And I had every intention to, to like heal her and, you know, alternative therapies, what have you, nothing worked. And I realized, shit, the woman I love the most is going to die. So I, ha I, I had to basically surrender. And six months into the process, the doctors officially said, I think it was seven months, they said, nothing we can do. Basically, you're going to die. So get your friends in order. Like, boom, like, it, it, you know, that moment, you know, it's coming, but the reality, it's still, it cracks you open, you know? And I mean, my mother was, was everything as that little kid. She was my everything. And even though our relationship had shifted, I knew unconditional love because of this woman. And so I look at my mother in the parking lot of the hospital and I have tears you know, coming down my eyes. And I say to her two things. Number one, are you afraid? She looks at me, this little Japanese woman. And she says, uh, no. I'm not afraid. Like, like, it's one thing to fake it, but you can feel the reality of someone. She says, I'm not afraid because I know I'm not this body. And this body is just a temporary vehicle for my soul. And even when I'm gone, son, I will be with you from the other side. Mm -hmm. And I'm crying because I'm feeling like, whoa, like, she's the real deal. Like, this is like the power of her yeah. conviction. And then I asked her, is there anything I can do for you, mom? Like, what do you need I'll to take you somewhere, buy you something? What do you need? And she says, this is where I think the seed was planted. She says, there's nothing I need and there's nothing I want. This is me and her in the car. 
Nothing I need and nothing I want. All I want is what God wants for my life. And I realized in that moment that she was free. Mm. She was completely surrendered, like truly surrendered. Mm -hmm. She wasn't attached to living. She wasn't attached to dying. She was open to the highest unfolding of her life and her soul's destiny. And this is why in this entire year, this emotional woman never cried, never complained, never felt like a victim. You know, none of the things I, th she was like completely at peace. Mm -hmm. And that's, so I'm there looking at this whiteboard and that's when I realized this is the book. It's about like my whole life and so many of the things I experienced, I felt this was the book I was born to write. Yeah. And this was the message that I felt like my soul was born to, to reframe and make accessible to the mainstream in terms of surrender. Like to me, surrender is the password to freedom. Surrender is the real key to, 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 to manifestation. Surrender is like the most powerful thing that we can do. We just kind of haven't understood the real essence of what it is. When I look at the great ones, like Jesus, Buddha, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Mandela, Bruce Lee, Muhammad Ali, Bob Marley. I mean, anyone that's done anything truly great, they all surrendered themselves. Like they truly surrendered themselves to life, to the flow, to the universe, whatever you want to live. They surrendered themselves beyond themselves. And in that, they were able to, despite their humanity and their foibles and their, you know, insecurities, they, they, they transcended themselves and life began to express through them and manifest them in that surrender. And so that's how the first book came about. And again, nothing was like what I thought the book title wasn't what I thought it was going to be you know the 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 book cover wasn't what I thought it was going to be but I felt like I felt the alignment of the message mm -hmm. that this is it this is not this is not like I have to sell books or to make it, it felt like this is what I was called to to deliver with the world and it, and it came from the inside mm -hmm. you know it really came from inside I, th I think in our culture that we think we have this misconception as like surrender is weak or it's giving up right. or if you surrender, you're not going to manifest your goals, dreams and desires. But I really think that if you, if we surrender, like what if we didn't get less, but we, we got, we got more right. than we could plan. We got more than we could imagine with our conscious mind. And I think that's, that's the beauty, you know, of, of surrender. And so letting go of control is, is when we stop trying to force and manipulate life to fit our limited idea of what we think it should be, is when we let go of the idea of what we think we should be, who we think we should be, how we think life should look so that we can truly be open, you know, and available to, to the authentic life that is seeking to unfold and happen. Not what we think, but the, the authentic nature of life that's seeking to unfold. And I think that's, that's what the book is about. But I will say, when you write a book about surrender, be ready I be, be oh, sure. for life to kick oh, your ass. <laughs> sure. I can only imagine. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to read it. Tell <laughs> 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 me, I'm like ready to read it. Okay. Um, so beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. And you just, you had me really choked up sharing um, the reverence with which you hold your mother. Like I just, I'm crying listening to you. I, I, I honestly... I'll be, I'll, I will say that I did not realize who this woman really was. Mm. To me, yeah, she's my mom, you know, she's my mom with all that. Mo In this moment, I realized, holy moly, like, 
I didn't realize who she was all these years. You know, all these years, I thought my father was the enlightened great one, the miracle man, like flashy and on stage and like he's the, I'm like, maybe it was my mother this whole time. Like this woman was so selfless, so unconditional. And in the moment of her death, unflinching, un like unflinching in her surrender, like truly. And I thought, shit, my mother's a like enlightened being. And I didn't know it all these, I didn't know it all these years, you know? And so when she died, there was a lot of grief for me when she died. And, and you know, I, it's funny. It, it was grief, but it wasn't painful. It was, it, it was, a, there was, I allowed myself to really feel, and I think this is also key to, like, I think grief is a portal to surrender. There is no real authentic surrender. Surrender is the open-hearted participation with the process of life. Mm. Like a lot of us, we stay in acceptance. Okay, I'll accept that she's died or accept that this has happened, but we're still a little upset or a little resistant. But grieving is the portal because surrender is a letting go. It's a death of who we thought we were. It's a death of something. And so for me, when my mother passed, there was a real process of grieving that I had to go, that I went through. And I, I allowed, and probably I had grieving sessions for probably two hours a night, three hours, because I had to work and stuff, but two, three hours a night, I would just let myself grieve and just feel whatever came up and feel whatever wanted to move through. And it was as though, when I would grieve, it was as though my heart would, my heart broke. I should say the shape of my heart, it felt like my heart broke in the grieving, in the tears. And it, it was like my heart's shape capacity broke open to another level mm. of, of loving. And so through that process of grieving my mother, I felt more grief, which broke my heart's current capacity to hold love open. But then I would find another dimension of my heart, another dim like, like it expand in the grieving, it expanded to a bigger size and capacity of loving. And that's when I saw like, wow, by allowing the grieving and honoring the grieving, I'm honoring the loving and I have a deeper capacity to love. And, and there was a strength that I, I always thought I was strong, but there was a strength. There's a strength that comes from allowing your heart to break, mm -hmm. then to realize in the breaking that you're not broken there's a deeper strength that arises when you break and then you realize you're still here that rather than holding it all together not breaking and, and trying to think you're strong and so like my mother again she kind of cracked my heart open to show me another dimension of my strength that i didn't even know was there you know because like when she passed away through the grieving seven days later i had to do a three-day intensive seminar for 300 people which was let me tell you that was a shamanic crazy experience to, to like be present and to feel her and and grieve at the same time and and find that other dimension of strength and so it i think it takes a lot of strength to grieve mm. and 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 it's through grieving we find another dimension of our strength and it was through the grieving that i really I understood the real essence of my mother because and i felt I felt and I feel closer to my mother now than ever before, 
in a strange way because like I would always call her and check in on her, but, but now I couldn't do that. My, my relationship with my mother was no longer like limited to the five senses. And that was really weird because I'm like, why do I feel closer to her now? Because now I felt closer to her, no longer limited to the five senses. And it was this feeling of feeling her with me all the time now, you know, and feeling her everywhere. It's like, wow. And it was, it was honestly, it's, it's really, she gave me many gifts in her passing. And the other gift I would say, to, to, to circle back with my father was I asked my mother, like I was having these sessions with my mother at night and I asked them like, mom, why, why did you go? Why did you, why, why did you die before? Like, I thought I had time. There were so many more things I wanted to do with my mother. And I'll be honest, I've done a lot in my life, but there's one regret I have and still have, but it doesn't now, it doesn't feel like a bad regret. I call it a sacred regret mm-hmm. because uh, when my mother was passing, thought, shit, why did I wait till she was dying to spend time with her? You know, like I spent eight hours in chemo sitting with my mother and realized I hadn't done this since I was five. I haven't, like, because I was so busy running around saving the world, but I didn't make time to just have a cup of tea. And I thought, this is what's important, you know? And so for me, that sacred regret is, is, is wanting to spend more time with my mom, you know, wanting to spend more time. So I asked her, why did you, like, why did you go early? I had all of these plans of taking you here and doing these things with you in a few years. And then I realized we don't have a few years. All we have is now. And she said to me, I passed away early. It was clearly in a meditation of like speaking to her soul. I passed away early to gift you a deeper relationship with your father. Because if I was still in your life, I would have been in the way. So now I've removed myself. This was her selflessness. I removed myself so there's nothing in the way now for you to do the karmic healing between the both of you. Mm-hmm. Now I'm like, oh shit. So then I made a decision that I was going to call my father. Um, you know, I had forgiven him, but we weren't like best buddies. Right. I made a decision in honor of my father and my mother. I would call my father every single day for the rest of my life until he dies and just honor him as a devotion, as a yoga, as a honoring of his soul Mm -hmm. and just love him Mm -hmm. so that he would know that someone loved him and his son loved him, regardless, even though he wasn't there for me, as a karmic cleansing between his soul and my soul. And I said, I'm going to just drop all the, my righteousness about he should call me and that I'm going to drop that. None of it matters. I dropped all expectation that he should do anything. And I, th- I said, I love him. That's all that fucking matters is I love him. I love him. What else, what, what else do I need? I'm going to love him. He can do what he wants. And if he dies, I will know in my heart that I loved him. And he will know. And that's it. And I'm telling you, in the last four years, this tough African you know, guy, I don't think he's been loved like that before. And he melted. And for the first time, this is proof for anyone that healing can happen. He melted. And for the first time, he didn't remember my birthdays when I was a kid. He didn't show up for my birthday. For the first time, he starts calling me for my birthdays, saying, I love you. No expectation, nothing from, he starts calling me, just checking in on me. 
And I think he realized the level of healing that happened for us could not have happened if my mother was here, you know? So anyway, that's a bit of the, the journey. And I'm like, oh, I feel it so deeply. Wow, just keep you going for hours. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so we have a lightning round of questions that we sure. ask all of our guests, if we may. Who have been your greatest teachers, mentors, people that have impacted you along your path, whether they are people that you know or just people whose work has really inspired you? I know you've spoken about some of them already. I, I would have to say my mom and my dad. Yeah. Mm. I mean, other people have impacted me, but in terms of real life impact, it's, it's, it's them. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay, so what are you doing when you find yourself in that state of flow, right? Like, what is that thing that kind of channels you into that place where it's like you blink your eyes and an entire day can go by? I think it's, it's some version of sharing my gift, which, you know, when I'm speaking, when I'm teaching, when I'm doing my events, like one of my events is 12 days in Bali and 18 hour days, literally, and it's over like that. Yeah. And so, yeah. That. Yeah, <laughs> I feel that from you. Yeah. Um, and what breaks your heart? Breaks my heart. Wow. Breaks my heart. Um, I think, you know, when I see, at least it pains my heart, you know, when, when I see, um, when I, like, like when I walk in downtown LA, or certain places and I see people that we've forgotten about, mm -hmm. you know? And whilst we're a humanity when we have so much yet, people don't have food to eat and right. shelter, like something about that really does something to my heart, Yeah, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, I feel that deeply. Yeah. Okay, so the final question, what is your favorite food <laughs> that's a that's the most difficult question you've asked me <laughs> because you know i'm japanese and i'm african and so it's like how do i ah, um, <laughs> only one right is there only one? one. Oh man you've only given us genres of food so i'm like okay there's a little bit of flexibility in the answer What's my favorite food? Uh, sushi, I love sushi. I love me, I can't, hey. and, you know, I love sushi. <laughs> let's, let's, go, let's go with that. Let's go with that. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, Coot, you are an absolute treasure. Just such a joy to meet you. Thank you so Thank much you. for sharing um, your gifts with us and with our audience. And I am really looking forward to reading your book now. So thank you so much for being here, truly. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you both. You like you really held a, a very beautiful space to allow the, the conversation to go. And just before we let you go, you know, why don't you let our audience know kind of where they can find you and sure. what's happening? Yeah, the new book, The Magic of Surrender, is out on paperback, is out May the 3rd. So, Amazon, uh, my website, kublaxon.com. Um, those that get the book and it's after that date, they can still go to www.kublaxon.com forward slash reinvent seminar, enter your receipt info, and get access to the replay of a seminar I did for those that purchased the book. Um, an event I do in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com and uh, Facebook and Instagram, Kublaxa. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for being thank here. I really both. appreciate it. Thank you. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. Be sure to share it with a friend, subscribe, and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to connect with us more, find us on Instagram at Cheaper Than Therapy, the podcast. Thank you.